0: Hey, good morning, church. Good morning, it's so good to see y'all here with us today. Uh, If you're new with us and we haven't gotten to meet yet, my name is Brandon. I'm actually the director of music and liturgy here at the church, and usually I I get the honor of getting to lead us all here in in the worship through music and liturgy every week. Yeah, I I, I love doing it, but sometimes, uh, when no one else wants to do it, and when y'all are particularly unlucky, uh, they let me get up here and preach. (laughs) No, but, but really, every time I, I, I get to do this, it's a huge honor and, and a blessing, and I love getting to do it, and so I'm excited to do so today as we look at 1 Peter and, and what God has to say to us through this letter and through this text specifically, because as you'll see, I, I think there's a lot here today. But before we begin, um, as, as we often say here at Grace Point, we lead, preach, and teach from the Bible, and so if you don't have one to follow along with us, I, I highly recommend you get one now, either electronic. Or physical, if you're following along electronically, we use the Version app, which uh, if you click on your profile there, you go to events, you click on Grace Point, all the sermon notes and texts and all that stuff, it'll be right there for you to follow along with. Or if you're more analog, we got uh, paper Bibles all around the room on those tables that are in English and in Spanish for you to follow along with the text in there as well. But before we begin, uh, I'd ask that you please bow your heads with me in prayer as I uh, pray over this time that we get to share together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would be honored by the preaching of your word, that, that all of our hearts and minds and affections would be stirred toward your perfect son, Jesus, and, and all that he's done for us, that, he would, that we would behold his glory and that we would be singing his praises. Let your Holy Spirit be felt among your people and, and let it be for the building up of your church and, and always, God, for your glory. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, our text for today actually comes on the heels of of this argument or this point that the Apostle Peter has been making throughout this chapter, and he'll continue to do so into the next chapter. So to give a quick recap of what we've covered so far in chapter 2, basically verses 1 through 11 gave us this beautiful fact that we have this God-given, never-earned, not-deserved identity as God's beloved chosen possession that we are his royalty his royal priesthood here on earth sent to represent him and we are his basically beloved that he loves us the rest of the chapter and as you'll see next week into the the third chapter basically covers how that plays out practically in the public square in our given context what it means to be god's beloved in these given scenarios that might come up in our everyday lives matt for example went through last week about how we are to be God's beloved in the political sphere. Next week, you're going to see that there is, in fact, a way to be God's beloved chosen people in and through our marriages. But today, I I believe that we've arrived at at a hinge text and at a hinge point in Peter's argument, because today, Peter chooses to, unlike any of the other instances, invoke the example of Jesus. You see, today, uh, Peter is actually turning his attention now towards slaves in the household. Now your translation, it might say servant, and I I think that's okay. It kind of tampers down the language here, I think, because of our modern sensibilities. The actual Greek word is oiketai. It literally means domestic slave. And so Peter is talking to these people in this text now. Not only that, but this is the text in which by invoking Jesus, Peter shows us that all of the do's of this letter, the things to do, have a who behind them or a person behind them, and that is Jesus. That everything that we've covered before and we'll cover today and we'll cover next week and in the weeks that follow, it is all grounded on the fact that Jesus has done these things before us, that he has set an example for us to follow. But I believe that Peter chooses to incorporate the example of, of Jesus here specifically because it is in this context that I believe he sees most closely the relationship to our, slave, uh, to our Savior. See, because he is speaking to slaves, because he is speaking to those socially regarded as, as the lowest rung, they would have had no say, no one to advocate for them. They were thought of as, as the lowest level of society. Honestly, the fact that Peter is even referring to them as individual moral actors in a letter in the Roman context is, is revolutionary. No one is speaking directly to slaves in any sort of letter, and yet Peter does so and he identifies them with Jesus he says you specifically you can and are can be and are faithful images of the creator of heaven and earth even in the midst of your context now who in here has tried and i mean tried you don't have to have succeeded but at least tried with effort to 100% from scratch cook a, a really complex recipe anybody in here 100% from scratch Cool, a, a few people, that's great. Now I- if you have, you would know that it usually is harder than not doing it from scratch. It, it usually takes more time, more work, more effort. But. More often than not, it yields the best fruit. I mean, the food just tastes so much better. It it just tastes different. And not only is the food and the, the fruit of that labor good, but you become a better chef, a better person in the kitchen by having taken on that hard task. Your knife skills get better. Your situational awareness gets better. You know if something tastes weird, if it needs salt, if it needs pepper. And the more you do it, the better you get. But... Because of those negatives I listed at first, the time, the effort, the commitment, the complications that can arise from undertaking such a task, most of us often skip it. And I believe that our text for today and the way we treat it is uh, oftentimes the way that we would treat something like that. Look at this first half of the text with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. This is where we'll start today. It says, "'Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect.'" not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, church, we we read a text like this involving a, a topic blatantly such as slavery. We see Peter tell them to be Subject to their unjust masters with all respect, seemingly condoning the institution. And, and if we're honest with ourselves and, and we let ourselves feel things about the Bible as God wants us to, He wants us to ask questions. Most of us, if we're honest, we read that and at least. We're like, it's kind of weird. You know, we read a text like that, we read a, a law here or there in Leviticus, we hear, we read a certain command, and we're like, that seems off. That, that, that doesn't line up with, with what I believe to be true about my God. That, that seems kind of strange. You know, why, why isn't God saying something else about this clearly bad thing? And, and yet, because it's hard, because it's controversial, because maybe the topic is, is too painful, because it would require work and wrestling and questions to deal with texts like this and others more often than not, we read that and we skip it. We toss it. Put it in the back of our minds. We go on to, to the good part, the Jesus part, and we don't deal with what's actually going on here and the radical claim that's being made because oftentimes we, we just don't feel like working through the text. Now, there, there are a few ways that I have felt that we as, as Christians can often skirt this conversation. One of them that I've heard is that people will say something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, slavery in the Roman context and in the Bible, uh, it's, it's way different than what we conceive of. Because when we think of slavery, we think of American slavery and the horrors that went along with that. Uh, but actually, Roman slavery it was way different. It actually wasn't it was as bad. Church, that is an outright lie, absolutely. Everything that we associate with the horrors of American chattel slavery, death, public execution, public humiliation, sexual abuse, being torn away from your families, all of these things, just as common in the Roman period. And so we, we can't say that. Another thing we can't do is say, oh well, you know, I, I don't think slavery is good. I don't think anyone else in this room thinks slavery is good. And so why are, why are we even talking about it? Why is this relevant to us today? No one, no one even thinks that that's a, a good thing. There is a huge reason why we cannot toss this topic out as irrelevant for us today. And it is a central truth by which we as Christians live every single day. And that truth is that all people who claim Christ today, yesterday, and forever are considered his body the body of Jesus, that we all are one family in Jesus, connected by the Spirit through space and time. Everyone who claims Christ, one family. And that is a, a beautiful, miraculous gift. And yet there are two aspects of that gift that makes it impossible for us to, to just toss this out as irrelevant for us today. And I'm going to give you those two aspects. The first one is that, like I said, we are a family. We reckon with the sins of of our family members, of of our people. Not just our own, it's a very individualistic way of looking at sins. We don't only reckon with our own. I'm sure you know this, if your mother or a daughter or brother or someone close in your family, if they sin egregiously, they sin publicly, not only will it more often than not reflect on them, but it also reflects on your family unit as a whole. Well, so too is it with the family of Jesus. See, if if we are, as the scriptures tell us, to be, quote, thought of well by outsiders, then we would do very well to think deeply and seriously about this text and others like it and to reckon with them and to reckon with what those who have used texts like this to abuse and own human beings have done with our Bibles. Because, church, I don't know if you know this, the sins of our, quote, unquote, family members 400 years ago, they still reflect poorly on us today outsiders still look into the church questioning things that happened centuries ago and attributing them not only to us but to Jesus because the people back then used their Bibles to do so. And this, this is not okay. This is not something that we as his representatives should or can stand for. And Jesus agrees with, with this way of identifying with the people and, and reckoning with the sins of your people. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 23. It'll also be on the screen if you're following along with us. Jesus is is talking to the Pharisees here. He says, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, Jesus is referencing here all the prophets of the Old Testament, Abel from the beginning in Genesis 4 all the way to Zechariah, whose death is accounted in 2 Chronicles, which in the old way of arranging the Old Testament, it would have been the last book of the Old Testament. And so he's saying from the beginning to the end. But what's interesting here is the fact that this murder of Zechariah, it took place hundreds of years before any of these Pharisees would have been alive even. And yet Jesus sees it fit to say, whom you... Murdered the people he is speaking to and what this tells us it gives us a sense that these Pharisees because of their Continued identification with the same people who did this atrocity They also must reckon with what their people have done and how it might be affecting the way that they practice in the current day Now another aspect of our family identity that makes it impossible for us to disregard this today is that we have brothers and sisters Listen to this language, Church, how how would we really feel if we really, deep in our bones, by the Spirit, felt like we have brothers and sisters who have historically been oppressed, abused, enslaved by other people who also claimed Christ in this country and are now today either indirectly affected by it still, as our African-American brothers and sisters are, or our family on the other side of the planet, who today are still being subjected to harsh labor, sexual abuse, oppression, murder, beatings. Because church, although it is illegal across the world, there are estimates that tell us that over 40 million people are still being subjected to some form of slavery across the world. So this is, this is not relevant for us at all. These are brothers and sisters we need to think about this deeply. Because oftentimes they are still being told to quote unquote be subject, and they are still being told this in the name of God. And so we have to do the labor of bearing the burdens of our family and thinking about this deeply with care and having confidence from the scriptures, not just because as a society, thanks be to God, we can all agree that it was an awful thing I don't think you need a Bible nowadays to tell you that. Unbeliever, believer, we all would agree slavery was bad. But I want us as Christians to know from the Bible that our God has never been for this, that he is not for this, and this is not what he has wanted for his creation. That just like text can be abused by Christians, so too is it a uniquely Christian thing to know that the creator of heaven and earth is not for this. This theologian and professor of New Testament studies, Esau Macaulay, points out, It says, no society that preceded the 18th century abolitionists contended that slavery itself was fundamentally immoral. The widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. Now beyond this, there's also a missional aspect to this as well for us as, as representatives of God's kingdom. Because there are folks out there who, like I said, they come across a text like this who come across laws in the Old Testament surrounding slavery, who stumble upon Paul telling slaves to submit to their masters, both good and bad. And you see, there's this question that starts to float around the minds of every non-believer, and most believers, if if we've come upon these texts and don't know what to do with them. That is, does the Bible condone slavery as we conceive of it? Or, Or phrased another way, why doesn't the God of the Bible explicitly condemn slavery as most people see it? And these questions and this text, others like it, they can become stumbling blocks. But both to a non-believer, scared now to approach the God who claims to be love, and even to a believer who came to Jesus, knows him to be love, and yet stumbles upon this text and it just fractures them. They're like, oh my gosh, what what do I do with this? I thought my God was love, why hasn't he said something about this? But as Pastor Tim told us a few weeks ago, Jesus, our Lord, he is the stumbling block. And so we, as his representatives, would do well to clear every barrier of entry for those seeking to follow Jesus and present him and him alone as the one who does the offending, not texts like this. Texts like this are not meant to offend people or keep people away from him, and yet they do. And so we would do well to reckon with them, think about them, and and find firm biblical confidence for, for what we believe and know in our hearts to be true. And so I first want to give us a a biblical theology on on this topic of slavery, of bond servitude and and what God's heart is on the matter. What the whole witness of scripture can tell us about the heart of God for his creation, the the images that he has made of himself. And so as we begin, I want to give two anchors specifically pertaining to who God is and what God desires for his creation that that I believe overcome any and all thought of, of this being something God wants for creation. And these have served to steady my angst on the topic. I hope they do for you as well. This is by no means exhaustive. There are a lot more texts, a lot more reading to do on it, but these are just two fundamental anchors that have helped me. The first is Jesus and God's creational intent. Now we start with the foundation of Jesus. I, I want to point us to his words, and more specifically to his interpretive method, the way that he's chosen to interpret the Old Testament. Turn with me, please, if you're following in a Bible to Matthew 19, verses three through eight. You'll see it on the screen as well. The Pharisees, as they often do, they're trying to trip Jesus up with a question from the Old Testament. And in this case, they ask him about the issue of divorce, specifically as it relates to a text like Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses one through four, which seems to, to legislate divorce. Now you might think this is worlds away from what we're talking about, but I promise it's actually super relevant, you'll see. It says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one man's wife one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now my interest here isn't Jesus' take on divorce, good as it may be, but rather how he's interpreted the text these Pharisees are referencing. See, their interpretive box would have been very similar to what people who would end up abusing texts like ours today would have thought of. See, they thought of this issue as biblical divorce, bad divorce, as some might say. Biblical slavery, bad slavery. And yet Jesus flips this paradigm on them completely. He doesn't even address what they're talking about. He points them to the beginning to our God's creational intent, what he wanted before sin entered the world in the ideal state when humans and God dwelt together perfectly. Jesus' concern was not what the Old Testament allowed, but what God intended. So what Jesus shows us then about Torah or about Old Testament law is that not every law code is a, it operates as a prescription of God's ideal. It does Jesus tells us this clearly. But rather, God meets his people by his word where they are in the culture and time in which they found themselves. And he took every step to to mitigate sin, to lessen the sin and evil associated with certain cultural practices in light of the hardness of his people's hearts. Because God is an idealist. He is also a realist. He knew his people. He knew what they would get up to. And so he gave them laws which would lead them in the direction of redemption for all people through his commands, all the while knowing this was not his creational intent. He was making compromises for a, a sinful humanity and working with his people. What we can conclude about what our God desires for humanity is found in the beginning. As Jesus says, That is, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's this beautiful humanity crowned over creation, placed as a jewel over it, ruling and reigning over God's created order, not over one another, side by side together in justice and love and mercy. Slavery is clearly not this, and therefore it is not God's intent. And we can feel comfortable interpreting texts like this because Jesus himself does so. And so when we see things like Paul telling slaves to obey their masters or masters to treat their slaves well or Peter as we see here telling slaves to obey their unjust masters instead of simply just telling everyone to stop owning slaves and telling all the slaves to run away we can can conclude that this is continuing in the prophetic tradition of God moving in to mitigate sin and lead his followers to be like Christ even in their context because we need to remember what that context is excuse me because church, Christians were a, a minority group, right? They were on the outskirts of society at this time. They had no means or way in any capacity to change Roman law or slave practices. This is very different than the majority Christian culture of the 18th and 19th century America, in which they had every means of affecting the law and making real change. But that's not where God meets them. He meets them in their struggle in their persecution, in their slavery, and says, you are valued, you are royalty, you are God's chosen priesthood, and you can be like Jesus even in your context, but we'll get to that in a bit, because the second anchor I have is the exodus and the character of God. And what I'm getting at here basically is our God's resume or what he declares to be this central aspect of what he has done for his people because the Old Testament, like two-thirds of our Bibles, refers to God in this way almost more than any other title, and he starts it himself. Our God, when delivering what we believe to be one of the most enduring set of commandments in the whole Bible, the 10 commandments in the book of Exodus, as he sets that all up, he begins by a declaration of who he is and his character. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, you might think, oh, well, that's their context. It's the book of Exodus. It literally just happened eight chapters ago, so he's just reminding them of the events that just took place. But if you continue to read your Old Testament, what you will quickly see is that all of the prophets, all of the authors would end up picking up this title as the key distinctive of who our Lord says he is. Every time a prophet would start, or many times a prophet would start to speak and declare the word of the Lord, he would begin by saying that he is the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so we see that this aspect of God's character, it is central to the biblical authors and to God himself and that he is the God who freed his people from slavery. So because of, of this, because of how deeply tied the identity of our God as it is presented to us in the scriptures is to the freedom of slaves, we can see that it is deeply related to our God's very person, to his character, that he would want freedom, liberation for his creation, not bondage. It is central to who he is, and we see his desire played out in the end of all things. When when God gets his way, when God's kingdom comes down to, to deliver all his people from the shackles of slavery in the world, and all is made right and beautiful and true, all things are put in subjection to God's will. Everything is as he desires it. We see not slavery, but liberation for for the whole cosmos in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new everything, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, It shows us, church, that that the exodus is a lens through which we ought to be viewing the character of God. That it is central to his desires that his creation would be free. Jesus instituted his divine meal, the, the Lord's Supper, and he went to die for us on the Passover weekend. The celebration instituted on the exodus. Because he he wanted us to connect the meaning of his death to the liberation of slaves from captivity. That is what Jesus is declaring that his death means. It is central to God's character and to his mission. So these two things together, Jesus and God's creational intent and the exodus and the character of God, they give me tremendous confidence and I, I hope they do for you as well. Because they do justice, not to just one text here or there, cherry pick, but I believe they account for the entirety of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and they reveal God's ideals, not man's, not compromises for a sinful humanity, which is what many of these texts end up being, but rather they present the undeniable truth that God is for his creation. All of it. That just like Peter's second letter in chapter 3 verse 9 says that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, So too does our God not wish that anyone would suffer or be oppressed or be abused. And anyone who would say otherwise is distorting and perverting who our God has revealed himself to be. And Peter tells us who our God is in the second half of the text. This beautiful and and wonderful picture that Peter presents of our Savior Jesus That he presents Jesus specifically in the context of Christian slaves suffering the harshest of treatment, the harshest of abuse. When Peter turns his attention to who Jesus would call the least of these, he gives them a beautiful truth. And he says that they, especially they, in their circumstances, can be like Jesus. Because Jesus himself was uniquely as they were. A servant, a slave, as the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There might be a, a footnote in your Bible that says that this can also be translated Slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And yet, church, we know that Jesus lived a beautiful, exalted life, honoring to the Father in every single way. Because, you see, living a faithful Christian life would have been of great concern to Christian slaves in this time period because it would have been nearly impossible to do given what they knew about what it meant to follow God, that it was about following certain moral codes or living up to certain standards or following certain commands. Now, they and we, we could obviously never do it perfectly as Jesus did, but they had little hope of even trying to begin to follow Jesus faithfully because of their context. Think about it, church. That that sexual abuse was, was rampant in these homes that people were being torn away from their families in these contexts, we can imagine them asking questions like, well, I I know it's important, but how am I supposed to be sexually pure when my master abuses me? How, How am I supposed to be a faithful husband to my wife or a faithful wife to my husband when I have no control over my body right now? My master owns me. How am I supposed to be a faithful father or mother to my children, as, as you all are saying is so important as Christians, if, if I don't have control over when I can see my child? And the Apostle Peter gets to this. He builds on something I believe that Paul actually gets at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And In this section, he's talking about living as you were called. You'll see it on the screen. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was, that's all we got, oh sorry, my notes look different. <laughs> um, do not be concerned about it, avail yourself of the opportunity if you can. Now it's, it's interesting that in a setting in, in which he's telling everyone to, to remain as they are, he specifically tells the slaves, yes, first he says do not be concerned about it, but then he says if you can gain your freedom, do so. Now, some interpret him saying, do not be concerned, and it does read that way, as Paul kind of trivializing slavery in their face, kind of saying, hey, if you're a slave, don't worry about it, but if you can get free, you should do that. But many scholars agree, and I totally agree with this, that actually Paul is getting at the questions that these slaves would have had in their lives as Christians. Because it specifically comes in the context of Paul talking about how important following the commandments of God are. He specifically says the commandments of God. And yet, lest the slaves listening to him be discouraged, he immediately turns his attention to them. And he says, do not be concerned about your circumstance. You are not culpable for the abuses and the sins of your masters towards you. And a matter of fact, God loves you. God cares for you. And you can be like Jesus even in the depths of your circumstances. And yet, if you can free yourself, do so. That's what Paul is saying there. Well, Peter, not contradicting this, but in alignment with it, he gives us the same message by comparing these domestic slaves to Jesus himself. Our second half of the text says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When we can work through the the controversy, when we remove this text of the baggage that this topic might have, and not just ignore or look past it, when when we're confident in what it means and in who our God is, we get to this beautiful diamond of a text that tells us that Christ suffered for you, leaving an, an example to follow. And this word example, it's the Greek word hippogramon, which actually, it refers to a a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which children, when they were learning to write, they would trace over this pattern of letters. It was the definitive way to to learn how to write in the Greco-Roman context. And so I think that when, when Peter says, when we translate an example, I think that can be a bit weak, because Peter, by referencing this, is telling us that this way of life Jesus, his unjust suffering and yet not reviling is the central paradigm for Christian life. There is no other way to be a Christian in this life. Jesus is the example to follow, not an example. The nature of of the comparison of slaves to Jesus makes it very clear this is not just in light conflict. See, in my research for the, the message today, I, I found that more often than not, when this passage gets preached, maybe to avoid the seriousness of the topic or the controversy, it usually gets preached something like how to be a good employee in the face of a harsh boss. And, and, and when we preach it in this way, I think we strip the text of the deep and radical claim that it's making. Because being a godly employee in the face of a harsh boss, it's super important, of course. But that's not what the text is actually referring to. It is, it is by no means the same as entrusting oneself to the one who judges justly in the face of harsh slavery. That is what Peter is speaking to. That is not only the severity of what Jesus did, but the value of what Jesus did. Right? That it enables us to be completely against the way our world thinks we should respond in the face of the harshest of circumstances, to In the face of abuses and injustices, which, again, if we can get out of those, we are encouraged to do so. But if we cannot, to respond with love. That, that is radical. That is unimaginable. I don't have a box for that. I don't think any of us actually have a box for that because we all, in arguments, in pithy verbal exchanges, we all feel the need or the right even to quit back with a remark or to call someone a name or to get my vengeance in this little argument. And so how would we dare to even begin to think that we can respond like Jesus in harsher persecution? And yet, Peter says that we can and we must. You know why, church? Because by his wounds, you have been healed. Those, those words mean something. Because as, as Peter says, we are with the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That is who Peter is saying our God is. The one who seeks us out with care, who comes to rescue us, church. That is Jesus. The one who came into the muck and the mire of this world for no other reason than to rescue us, to be our shepherd church. Remember what a shepherd is and what he does. This text cannot be overstated in your Christian life. You cannot read this text enough. Psalm 23, you will see it on the screen. Let's listen to these words. This is who Jesus is. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Peter tells these slaves, this is the one who will comfort you. You shall not want, you can live without fear because Jesus has gone before you, he has suffered for you, and he is with you. You see, because even more common than it sometimes still can be today, this thought that these circumstances that were out of your control, being born into slavery, being born poor, being born with a disability that you can't heal from, the idea that these things were clear signs that God had abandoned you, that God did not love you, it was wildly prevalent in this time. It was the way that people thought about stuff like this. And yet Peter, by providing the example of Jesus, flips it on his head when he says that the perfect Son of God in his suffering, his servitude, when he invokes that example, Peter is telling us that in the darkest of times, not just not just in the minor inconveniences that you can get yourself out of, though he is obviously there with you as well. But what Peter is saying is that in the darkest of times, in, in the days and the weeks and the months and the years, because remember he's speaking to slaves, freedom was not likely. In in these long stretches of time in which you have no control over what is going on in your life and you feel like you do not see the light at the end of the tunnel, not only has God not abandoned you, goodness and mercy are following you. They have not left your side for a moment. They are hot on your heels with the knowledge of the fact that the Lord of heaven and earth left his throne to come and suffer for you. Remember the the psalm, it says he will fear no evil, that as he walks through the valley, God's presence, it doesn't eliminate the evil, it doesn't release us from the valley, it gives us all the means to, in the midst of this valley, sit at the head of the table that God has prepared for us. to, To in the harshest of our circumstances, enjoy the feast of his presence, of his goodness, and through this, overcoming any and all things this life can throw our way because we cannot just look at this beautiful life of Jesus, his mercy and his kindness and his meekness in the face of hatred, those things that we love about our Savior and say, oh, no, no, that's just for him. Those are, that's the stuff that Jesus did. That's the Jesus thing to do. No, he, he did it all so that we could, every single day, Christian, in the face of whatever circumstance, you can be just like the one who overcame it all with love, And gentleness, that's what Peter is telling us today, that we as his heirs can overcome, that we can have hope. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you. You are the faithful one. You're the the suffering servant who bore our sins on the tree that your wounds might heal us. Let that give us hope true, unswerving, unrelenting hope in the face of our trials and hardships and circumstances to be just like you, to participate in your suffering as we suffer and and remember that you are with us in it all, that you are for us through it all. We love you, Lord, for you are so faithful to us. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen.